Genre. Welcome to Disney Animation Minute Essentials, where we are submerging in Disney's The Little Mermaid, one minute at a time. I'm Andrew Dorowski. And I'm Kestra Dorowski. Today, for the last time this week, and probably this film, uh, we've got... uh, Well, I just spaced on your name. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) This is Brad from Cosmic Geppetto Podcast, and also the Minute of Darkness Podcast, where we talk about the... uh, the, the classic Sam Raimi movie, Army of Darkness, minute by minute. Uh, it's been a long, long bit of recording, so you probably are <laughs> just about ready to forget your own name, so that's no problem. You know, it's uh, it's because on our on our connection for the recording, you have yourself listed as Cosmic Geppetto, so that's all I think of when when I when I look <laughs> down at the recording feed. I'm like Cosmic Geppetto. Wait a second, it's Brad. <laughs> Today we're discussing Minute 15 of The Little Mermaid, which begins with Sebastian completing his line from before saying, under tight control, and it ends with Sebastian exclaiming, huh, as he he gazes into the rest of the secret cavern, which we won't be talking about this week, really. Uh, Minute 15 of The Little Mermaid features King Triton telling Sebastian to supervise Ariel, Sebastian muttering to himself and complaining about his new job, and Sebastian following Ariel and Flounder curiously to a cave. I tell you what, and there's been so much talk about how, you know, we're all, uh, we're we're not not kids anymore, and uh, realizing the different perspective that we may have had when we first saw this movie, uh, I tell you what, if he ever needed something to show that Triton was right, not really trusting Ariel, he just told her, stay away from, stay away from anything involved with the surface world, and you, you know, you need to be more grown up. And not 20 seconds later, there's Ariel and Flounder, like, grabbing the bag of human stuff and flying off to the secret cavern where they keep the stuff he told them not to touch. It's like, you just went one ear and out the other. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I wish he had explicitly said, and stay in your room until I come get you, or something like that. Because she's sneaking out, but at the same time, we don't hear explicitly that she's not allowed to leave. Right. Right now. She kind of left the room of her own accord um, during their their fight. The first note I had uh, was before she gets the bag, Mm -hmm. uh, Sebastian is given the responsibility the responsibility of looking after uh ariel he's it's, king triton says he's the right crab for the job i don't think a crab should have this job no not unless it's tomatoa the the giant crab that can actually hang on to people yes <laughs> um i also I, so I, I had a question with this and i was wondering like sebastian's saying all this stuff and then triton gets like, really happy. Like, he has a big grin break across his face. He says, and you're the one to watch her. Why is he so happy about this idea? Is he trying to punish Sebastian for something? Is he getting Sebastian out of his hair? Or I I just don't understand exactly what his emotions are in this moment. I just think Triton likes making Sebastian uncomfortable, and he likes seeing Sebastian get that, you know, big eye drop jawed look on his face and you see it later at, at, in the end scene of the movie where 
Sebastian starts talking about how you need to trust uh, your kids and all that, and Triton gets a similar look on his face. He's like, oh, Sebastian, he's starting again. And I think Triton likes giving Sebastian a little bit of a rope to hang himself and get himself into these troubles. And uh, it's a fun smirk that he gets, and uh, you see it a couple times in the movie. So it's just Sebastian, his his mouth is writing checks that his shell can't cash. (laughs) I guess that might be the case. I just wish Triton wasn't getting so excited about assigning him to do something that could go so wrong. I mean, in the TV, so Sebastian says, why do I get myself into all these situations? And the TV series, he's in a lot of situations where he's either supposed to watch Ariel or help Ariel. Or stop Ariel from doing something. Yes. And he doesn't often succeed in those. Yeah, like he has a track record um, of successfully completing this missions as good as Ariel's track record for listening to her father's instructions. (laughs) Yeah. He, he's bad at his job. He, he's a musician. We, I can't stress far enough. I've known too many musicians. You don't give them like really responsible, responsibility-driven task because uh, you're going to end up with your. I'm pretty sure if I, I know a couple of musicians, I'm pretty sure if I've left them uh, in charge of my kids, they would also end up almost getting eaten by sharks. That doesn't even make sense where I live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, he makes good music. Like, his composition seemed on point, so maybe he really should be left to composing, um, just like Sebastian says. Uh, he, he, it's what he should be doing. But at the same time, he's not just a composer, he's supposed to be an advisor to King Triton. If he was just the composer, why is he hanging around the king's throne? Mm hmm. Yep. Yeah, it, it's, they really need to stop having his guys multitask so much. Yes, <laughs> and really, I mean, we have basic evidence that it's only Sebastian. That seems to be the only Advisor person in the court. Pers- well, there's also the the seahorse. Oh, the, herald the, the the herald herald the seahorse. Yes. Herald. <laughs> um. Yeah, but he. But he's only in like. He's in like one other scene where, and he he has a very specific job. He's not multitasking. Well, I guess he is. He's he's announcing King Triton at the concerts and, and delivering also delivering messages. messages. But that's all communication based. Yeah. Um, which is not uncommon in organizations to dedicate a a person to like communications, and then they end up taking on a lot of responsibilities associated with communications. But maybe maybe there's not a whole lot of courtiers i guess people i mean we don't see any of them maybe there's not a lot because king triton doesn't trust a lot of people i mean in the tv series there was this glowfish that was in charge of all the treasure and he ended up he tried to commit fraud basically (laughs) yeah yes and and was against king triton and and everything and why doesn't he have any mer people helping out like wouldn't it make more sense to assign a mer person to watch Ariel. Well, you know, maybe it's Ursula. Maybe he felt really betrayed by Ursula. You know, so she used to be people. part of the. Yeah, it's all about. Yeah. He's like, I trust. I trust crabs, crustaceans. That's where it's at. I did do a little research on crabs to try and figure out, narrow down maybe uh, what kind of crab we're dealing with here. Uh, since Sebastian's are red crab, that doesn't really track with any of the environments that we think this might be taking place in. 
we, I mean, we settled on roughly Denmark um, and in that area. Uh, none of the red crabs that I pulled up live in that area. There are some crabs that are red in the Atlantic, but they typically stick to the east coast of the United States and Canada. Uh, so they wouldn't be present in the west coast of, of Europe at all. Uh, there's also the big king crabs in the Bering Sea. Not applicable here. And then some in the Mediterranean. Um, Which we did say that... It or, could... sorry. Not Mediterranean. Sorry. I was crossing my stuff. Some in the Indian Ocean. Ah. Close to the Mediterranean. Not in the Mediterranean. Okay, that makes more sense. Um, and and that that's where the brightest red crabs are. The I think it's Christmas Island red crabs. Huh. Uh, are in the Indian Ocean. And... I can't say that they especially look like Sebastian, but Sebastian doesn't especially look like a crab, actually. Yeah. Uh, he kind of sticks a, a lot of soft, meaty flesh out of the shell, uh, whereas most crabs are pretty much entirely encased. Yes. No, I've, uh, you know, like I, like I mentioned before, I've uh, you know, been living in or around Baltimore for a long time. Uh, crabs are very important to people of Baltimore. And uh, thankfully, when we've eaten crabs, none of them look like Sebastian, because that would just ruin the meal. <laughs> yes. and But it would also be easier to get the meat out. <laughs> yes. I mean, you could just, you could just squeeze them. Because I, I, I love... Crab is one of my favorite uh, seafood, seafood items. items. And breaking it is... Breaking the shell and, and getting the meat out is, is, is fun, but hard, and sometimes painful, and exhausting. And, like, with him sticking most of his flesh out of the shell, it would be... He's, he's awfully exposed. Yes. Yeah. Now, crab is one of the few meals that you actually break a sweat trying to eat it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd, I'd also note, in this sequence, that is not how crabs move. He starts swimming after Ariel and Flounder. Crabs don't really swim, and... Even if they did, I mean, all of their movement is basically side to side. They don't move forward very much. Which he does. Yeah, he, he's always uh, scooting forward. And really, he should be moving side to side. And then I've never seen evidence of a crab, like, swimming off of the off of the floor, off of the sea floor. They usually stick to the ground. Yeah, it, yeah, they're definitely not doing, like, the, you know, such an impressive doggy <laughs> paddle as he is. Yeah, he's he's doing the front crawl through this water, and I guess they just needed a way to get him to keep up. But that's that's another reason why I don't think he's the best person to, or creature to watch, Ariel, because he is a crab, and his swimming isn't as fast as hers. Yeah, and uh, and he he mostly walks, and that's that's just it doesn't track with. Keeping track of a fish or mm -hmm. parked fish. I mean, what if Ariel wanted to just have a place that was not on the bottom of the ocean? Then he wouldn't be able to help. Yeah, exactly. I did take note that when Flounder gives Ariel her bag, he's holding the bag in his mouth. He's not holding it in his on fin. His, on his fin. Or I, I thought it would have been like on top of his yeah. body. It's mm. not like that. He, he bites it in his mouth he, like a like a his, dog. Yep. Okay. Yeah, there's definitely a fetch thing going on there. Yeah. 
I mean, from wherever they were hiding the the, the bag, because she didn't have it in Mm-mm. in the throne room, and she Which probably would she not have kept it. Yeah, she shouldn't have kept. She had would have it. gotten into more trouble. Yes. Uh, so they retrieve it, and, and she's going to go deposit that stuff in her collection. Uh, I noted that they do another interesting camera move here. I, I'm tr- I try to pay attention to the camera work, especially in an animated feature, where they have Ariel and Flan- Flounder swim over the camera, and the camera has to you know pan all the way up to track them through the shot. And I think they're really taking advantage of having really a, a three-dimensional environment that they're filming in, in this case. And I know it's it's not film, and when it's animated, they can always work from a three-dimensional way in in, in a way that you can't with physical uh, camera positions and, and filming. But I think this is a good example of it where they, they can say, we don't have to worry about, like, a cameraman actually being here. We can stick it down low, under the water, uh, and, and deep into this uh, sort of a trench um, that they're swimming over. And we can track them from that, and we can move the camera with them. It's something that um, you see in Little Mermaid that um, I think becomes really, really well used in uh, Lion King, where it's animation, but thinking of, okay, we can do just incredible camera tricks because we don't actually use any camera. Um, And I know in Lion King, the big thing is like shifting the focus of a scene, so... You would have the the tight shot was uh, clear and the back background was out of focus, and then switching that because it's anime, there was no reason to do that aside from the fact it just looks like a really incredible camera trick. And you see the the seeds of that in Little Mermaid with scenes like what you just mentioned, mm-hmm. where they they come in and you can see kind of the focus uh, follows them and it adjusts appropriately to them. Um, and I think it's amazing, and I I kind of wish that I would have shots like that more often in animated films where they really do t- like you, you should really take advantage of the fact that you're not dealing with physical, ca- physical cameras. You can be up in the sky and do sweeping shots that you can't do because uh, of limitations with helicopters and, and airborne vehicles and things like that. Like take advantage of that and do movements that you you can't really get and and angles that you can't really get um from physical camera work in live action films i i think that would be a great way to use animation as as a film medium is to do these things where it's like you can do these impossible things and you can be in in impossibly small spaces and have a camera view from there yeah Yeah, that's uh the advantage of animation is um from a camera angle and location everything there are no limits and um you know being uh as as i grew up a big comic book fan i i was once trying to someone was asking to to explain the appeal is like well just imagine you have uh 22 pages of a comic every month and it can take place anywhere and anything and the only limitations is the abilities of the artist and the imaginations of the writer and you could have, um, you know, the Spider-Man films cost uh, anywhere between 150 to 220 million dollars to make, and to just try to um, recreate convincingly what a, you know, when I started reading comics, they were 60 cents an issue. They're trying to recreate what you would be in the 60 cent um, pages of a comic, and animation has that ability as well, where the, you know, the only limits are. And I know Disney animated films are very expensive, but 
still the, the things they're doing in those movies were would be uh, incredibly expensive to try to recreate in live action and still wouldn't be nearly as impressive because you know as computer animation gets more and more impressive uh, you can do more but uh, it's, it's still prohibitively expensive to do that in live action yeah certainly uh, i mean there's a reason that with animated features we don't really talk about uh the budget in the way we do for live action especially action film uh you know the summer blockbuster action films you know where we say it's like well this one's a 200 million dollar film with animated features that doesn't really get brought up uh in the same way because it's just an it's an entirely different kind of situation and that doesn't mean that they're not going to make as much money as those big live action blockbuster films so the, the return on investment might actually you know be more dollar for dollar to invest in an animated film well you just look at the you know before little mermaid it had been what 10 to 13 years between their last big animated success uh, i guess they did the big successes certainly yeah yeah, but in any other studio, if they were to have a ten-year losing streak, that'd be the end of the studio. But even though these movies weren't nearly as successful and certainly didn't have the the critical love, um, those movies still made enough to justify. No, we're going to keep going. We're going to keep going because it wasn't enough to derail the entire studio, even though it had been over a decade before since they had a, a huge success. They didn't need to be huge successes to still be money makers yeah and i would i would say that you know sony or warner brothers or or any number of live action film studios i don't know if they could take 10 years like that Mm -mm. that would be a a tough hit but uh with with that i think comes with what we've talked about before on 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 this on the little mermaid or little mermaid as we call it (laughs) uh the animation department was being talked about being shut down. And I think a big part of that was because of years of not the kind of success they yes. needed. And they had 40, they had a budget of $40 million uh, for, for little mermaid, for little mermaid. And they had a lot of limitations on what they could do. And, uh, and they also had this big, bar that they needed to reach and at, at, in the end they grossed over 220 uh, million dollars in mm-hmm. worldwide and that ended up creating this hu- this what we call the Disney Renaissance period and um the precedence for the ne- coming upcoming next films mm-hmm. which which definitely was better than with the the last uh, feature um, film, the theatrical hit that they had mm-hmm. ten plus years before. What do you consider to be the end of that uh, Renaissance? Uh, we typically talk about the end of the Renaissance, and I'd say uh, most Disney semi historians or, or culturalists would say that it's about the millennium. It's about two thousand. Uh, the We're Renaissance cutting it off at Tarzan. Yeah, the Renaissance basically ends at, at Tarzan. Uh, There's a Fantasia which came, which came out in 1999, but mm-hmm. or Fantasia 2000. Yeah, but uh, it's more of what we're calling the experimental period because it After has that. different 
there are aspects. Pl- th- there's plenty of films that that do line up with the Disney Renaissance. They seem to track with it and the same kind of a success. But on the whole, the that era, that ten years um, from 2000 to 2010 for Disney uh, was more characterized by experimenting with different things and typically having more failures than they did from 89 to to 2000, uh, which is where most people would say the Renaissance goes to. Uh, after 2000, they do Fantasia 2000. They have things like Dinosaur, Emperor's New Groove, so they move away from the musicals, which is one of the reasons that uh, they get separated from the Renaissance. Almost all the Renaissance films are musical style. Um, Emperor's New Groove, Lilo and Stitch, again, not a musical but then they do attempt to kind of go back to the Renaissance style with things like Brother Bear, but they never had the same success as the Renaissance. Yeah, it, it's it was a weird thing because often you think of it as being a real uh, distinctive, you know, oh, it ended here. And then you think, well, it was with the Hunchback of Notre Dame uh, or Pocahontas or, you know, movies that weren't quite as successful. But it was, again, where you sort of realize you're not remembering it quite right. Those movies were successful. They did sort of line up uh, thematically. So uh, I'm sure there's people who have different differing opinions about that. But I, I, oh, I think absolutely. what you say definitely makes sense. Like, the, yeah, that, so that was the, the cutoff period. Yeah, so we broke it all, like, up to the modern day, we broke it down into five major eras. But if you look online, uh, you'll see seven or nine uh, very commonly. I think seven is probably the most common. And we grouped some of those earlier um, eras into the same unit. And I'd say most, even when they break it down to seven or nine, it's usually separating things before the Renaissance. Most of the Renaissance and post-Renaissance stuff is the same way we've broken it down, more or less. Maybe maybe a film or two off. But... Yeah. Um, and, and it's tricky because there's films that seem to kind of cross boundaries. It, technically, within the Renaissance, you have something like Rescuers Down Under. And we'd say that's really part of the creative forces that were in play before Little Mermaid. Um, and, and it, I mean, it's, it's a sequel to a film from the period before the Renaissance. So we say it fits into there, even though chronologically it it's an overlap into the disney renaissance i don't think most people would actually describe it as a disney renaissance film no no it was definitely uh it definitely felt like an afterthought of a film and uh almost sort of lined up with like the goofy movie um yeah where goofy movie wasn't even the same studio as um as all of the the little mermaid and and um Beauty and the Beast. It was it was the Disney Toon Studio instead of the Walt Disney Animation um, Studio, and so yeah, there's it, there's a lot of weird stuff, and then you get things like there's Winnie the Pooh films that take place or are released at all sorts of different points, and it and they, from different studios too, because there's some from the Disney Toons, and then there's some yeah. from the Disney so, Animation. So so Winnie the Pooh as a franchise for Disney is kind of the most confusing <laughs> because it's like well, it was released here. It doesn't fit, but it never fits anywhere. It's just its own sort of microcosm. Um, but yeah, so it, when we when we talk about uh, Kestra has the list where we've broken down, you know, which films we're putting into which section. And so when we talk about the Disney Renaissance, it, it certainly starts here with Little Mermaid, and then um, I think we've only got what ten or twelve films that are um, what we identify as the Renaissance films. Um, nine. Nine. Okay, so I was a little bit off. So we've got nine. Which ones are they, Kestra? 
<clears throat> Renaissance films. Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, Pocahontas, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, Mulan, and Tarzan. And the the latter portion of that, I think, is sometimes divided into a subsection. Sometimes people call it the weird period. Uh, it was a, I think, uh, Mulan and Tarzan and Hercules were all uh, produced in the Florida studio, which was shut down after Tarzan. Which actually was opened up with Little Mermaid to help with inking and painting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it took it, it took full responsibility for a few films yes. in the second half of the Renaissance. Yes. Uh, which is one of the reasons they seem to feel a little differently um, from the initial Renaissance wave. And so the Renaissance really does have those two separate waves. Um, and the the iconography that Disney maintains at the parks is typically from the first half of the Renaissance, as far as Renaissance film, films go. Uh, you don't see a lot of Tarzan or uh, Mulan or Hercules uh, representation at the, the theme parks at Disneyland or Walt Disney World. No, definitely. It it, it it was such an incredible peak, and when uh, when Lion King happened, especially, the movie broke so many records, and it was such a huge film, and uh, you still see the cultural impact. I remember watching, uh, I think it was like the first episode of Modern Family, uh, where they adopt uh, the 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 gay couple in the in that show adopted a. A, a Chinese baby, and to introduce the baby to the family, they actually played this music from Lion King, and he came out and held the the child aloft his head. And uh, I was like, "Wow, that 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 movie is a twenty plus year old movie, but it, it's still a recognizable enough uh, image that uh, they can do that joke and know the audience will get it." Yeah, there's certainly a big impact. I'd say uh, the biggest impact that Disney has on people who are adults now is from the Renaissance and early Renaissance in particular. Um, it it kind of cuts off at Pocahontas and Hunchback of Notre Dame. I think a lot of families didn't buy those on VHS, and so they didn't carry as as much weight with uh, people who are adults now and, and writing and, and creating uh, TV shows and, and movies and everything now. But part of that was also knowing Pocahontas, the actual realistic yes. story. Yeah, that was based and knowing that, having a, a real world story that they adapted for Pocahontas in, the, in that way was a it was it was a hit to Disney's reputation for a little while in the 90s. And then the actual novel of Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is a lot darker. And, yes, and that was sort of a, a that was a one two punch that uh, burned some bridges, uh, but they did get them back by the by the end of the 90s that it just the tone didn't carry over into the 2000s and didn't really come back until the the 2010s um, with Tangled and Frozen and. And all of those. Uh, Princess and the Frog is, is a debatable point about whether or not that is a return to form. Um, but the animation style is different and it's not exactly the same as like story-wise and, and, and production-wise. Well, and, as... and setting it in New Orleans, yeah. real-world locations and things like that. But I mean, don't don't get us sidetracked with this. We will, <laughs> we will talk about it for so long. Um, but if you ever want that on Cosmic Geppetto, just let us know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We would we love to discuss the history of the Disney eras. We're definitely, uh, yeah. We got to get you guys on the show. We, I know we talked about it briefly, but uh, but before we, and uh, you know, next Disney movie that comes out, we're having you guys on. That that's the perfect uh, way to get you guys onto the uh, onto the mothership. Let's see, what's the next Disney Disney one? Because there's Pixar in November. There's the Pixar with Coco, but that's Pixar. 
We could talk. We could come talk about Pixar. We'd be happy to do that. Uh, too. Uh, I don't know what the next Frozen Two. There's got to be one before then. We should know this because D twenty three just had it and said everything, and we paid close attention. Yeah, but I think they 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 told more about Pixar than um, they told Disney more about, plans like incredible. We'll we'll look it up. We'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I we'll get something plan. set up. That's uh, I I appreciate having something a little more concrete as as our goal for getting on Cosmic Geppetto. I think that oh, that pr- this all probably too. means that we are done talking about our minute (laughs) (laughs) yes oh it's wreck it ralph 2 oh that would be an excellent one to to use as the uh talking point for that so that's that's not until 2018 though right yeah Yeah, we'll we'll we'll, we'll get you on before that there's coco there's incredibles too we we uh and you guys doing are doing such a great job with this (laughs) Um, and you know, it, it's, I kind of had so much fun talking with you guys and, uh, it's very different than when I, you know, when we did our own minute by minute, uh, minute of darkness, talk about army of darkness. Um, it was a very, very different film than what you guys are doing because that was such, um, that was such a weird one-off culty hit and talking about, um, you know, the, the Disney films, um, which are so important and so culturally big, and uh, it, it's such a great turnaround. And uh, you guys do such a good job with this show, and you know your stuff. And it's a uh, really, uh, and also it's great that I'm not the one who has to edit these episodes. So it's- <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you. We we enjoy that. Yeah, we we appreciate the compliments, and and we enjoy having you on as a guest. Definitely. That's all we have for you today. We are part of Dueling Genre. You can find us and many other podcasts at duelinggenre.com. There you will also find a link to a Patreon page where you can support all Dueling Genre productions. We are on Twitter and Instagram at DizMinute, on email at DisneyAnimationMinute at gmail.com, and on Facebook at the Disney Animation Minute Secret Essential Listener Society, or Damsels Group. Our guests can be found... At CosmicGeppetto.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter at uh, Cosmic under- underscore Geppetto uh, for the Minute of Darkness podcast, which is all wrapped up so you can listen to it beginning to end where we talk about Army of Darkness. Uh, we are uh, on Twitter at Min of Darkness. It's a really fun show. It's a very, very different movie than what you guys are listening to now, but I think you'll have a great time. Um, and, uh, you know, you guys, thank you so much for having me this week. Well, thank you for for joining us for it. Yes. Uh, We uh, also want to thank moviesbyminute.com for having the full list, or at least most of the list. Yeah, they they periodically have to update that catalog because there's always (laughs) new ones coming out. (laughs) Of of all the people, uh, podcasts who are doing uh, movies by minute like us. Uh, and you can go check them out and find probably something else that you, another film that you will enjoy. If you like movies and you're listening to us right now, there's a good chance you can go to that page, moviesbyminutes.com, and find something else that you want to listen to. Yes. Until next time, thank you for making us part of your world. Bye.